Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 79 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the Doom Traveler Gottlieb. Uh, finally made his way to Seattle. Welcome, buddy. But we can't hang out quite yet because I'm in Las Vegas. Yeah, that's fine, honestly, because as my name implies, I am absolutely a Doom Traveler right now. I'm ready to become a 1-1 spirit. I have just been driving for days and days and you know, have tons of unpacking and cleaning and setting up my house to do right now. So uh, I'm definitely overwhelmed with tasks. So wait till I have rejuvenated a little bit, maybe gotten up to some reanimator type shenanigans, you know, Mardu aristocrats type things where I've become this more powerful entity as we go forward. And uh, I've moved past the doom traveler phase of my my new home. Fair enough, man. Just let me know. If you need any help unpacking or any of that stuff, and uh, you know when you're when you're back to feeling like a normal human, I guess. I like it, yeah. And you know, the the game nation has been incredibly useful in this entire process. Like, I'm driving across the country, and I would just put a you know a brief blurb up in the Discord, like, "Oh, I'm in this town," and I get like two people messaging me, "Oh, I'm from that town. Go do this, this, and this." So it's <laughs> it's nice that we have a network of. Uh, devoted supporters all over the country to refer me to the right places to go. Did they tell you where to make that squirrel friend in Montana? No, that was just complete happenstance. And I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think that's a prairie dog. If you don't, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, go check out my Twitter feed uh, at Brian G-O-B-R-Y-N-G-O. And, and I made a little rodent friend at a rest stop in Montana. He was eating cherries out of my hand. Uh, and my wife was like feeding him cashews and the little uh, <laughs> the little prairie dog was like climbing up on her lap. It was crazy. Obviously, someone else has hand fed these animals before because they were super used to humans. But it was really cool. That would make more sense than it just being a squirrel. But yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not super familiar with prairie dogs. Like, I don't know if this is normal behavior for them. I, I don't know. I haven't spent a lot of, of time in Montana, but you used to be from Montana. Isn't that true? Yeah. I, I lived in Billings for four months, six months, something like that. I spent the night in Billings, so I'm, I'm familiar with the town now. Hmm. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> no, it was fine. I mean, it's an interesting place for sure. Very different. Yeah. No, like the city layout is, is pretty weird too. Yeah. I have some nice stories of uh, playing magic at the local card shop there that you should ask me at some point. Uh, we'll definitely have to have a debrief session on that. Okay. Well, we had SCG Con featuring the Invitational last weekend that I was at. It, it started okay. I ended up 6-2 and two and then lost playing for cash. But this weekend, uh, we have Grand Prix Las Vegas. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then uh, we have some Core Set 2019 spoilers. All kinds of stuff going on right now. A very busy time in the Magic world. Yeah, so you've, you've been in a car. Uh, I don't know like how much you got to... Pay attention to coverage or think about modern or read corset spoilers or what, but uh, I don't know. Like, I, I assume you've just been doing other stuff. 
No, I, I've done my best to stay as plugged in as possible. You know, my my wife certainly did a large portion of the driving across the country. And in that time, basically, anytime I wasn't driving, I was reading about magic, thinking about magic, doing magic-related things. So um, while I didn't get to play any magic, which was super disappointing, especially with the RPTQ weekend that just passed, which we should certainly talk about as well, I was still able to stay plugged in enough that I think I have a lot to contribute on this week's show and make sure we get our listeners up to speed. Awesome. Love it. So... Uh, I guess we'll just start with the RPTQ first then. Uh, what's what's the deal? What do you think is doing well, like kind of crushing it, all that good stuff? Honestly, from, from, what I'm, what, from what I'm hearing from people, successful teams were all over the board. There was a lot of different options. Uh, you know, some people found a lot of success with the configuration, configuration we proposed, the blue-black mono red green white configuration i know uh one of my friends took that exact configuration to a top eight and just narrowly missed the invite we had a ton of people in our discord uh qualify i I know one of them was adam snook who played with matt costa and dave shields and they played a a crazy configuration with no hearts I, i think zero green cards in any of their three decks they played blue white blue black and mono red i think were the three decks they leaned on yeah no green cards no I don't think that's right. I think they played no red cards. I'm sorry. I think they played green, black, uh, blue, black, and blue, white. I'm pretty sure. No, I think it was zero green cards. No red cards is crazy. We'll have to get the complete story. Check me out on on Twitter and I'll make sure I clarify. Um, I I had looked at it earlier. They did something absolutely bonkers though, and they didn't lose a match of magic throughout the weekend. So you can go bother either Snook or Costa on Twitter and I'm sure they'll happily talk about their strategy. But it just shows how much diversity this format really had. People took all kinds of off-the-wall strategies, off-the-wall approaches, uh, and were able to convert them to, to Pro Tour invites. So, you know, props to everyone who found that success. A lot of people reaching out to us over the past week saying, thank you for the help. Again, it's the same thing we said last week. It's definitely you guys, but I'm, I'm happy we were able to kind of guide the way a little bit, push you on the right path to help you all reach the right conclusions and, and find that ultimate success. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that the RPTQ stuff kind of taught me and also last week from talking to Kevin Jones is like I got a little bit more interested in the black-blue mid-range decks So I ended up playing that in standard at the Invitational and I was overall pretty happy with it. Like for the most part, I was just like farming all the control decks. There were like surprisingly a lot of them. Like I definitely played against more control decks than red decks, which was pretty surprising. But the red matchups were tough and I'm still looking for ways to kind of fix that. But uh, main deck Bloodfast, man, like like the last time I streamed, I was playing blue black control and I cut a lot of the draw twos for a couple of main deck blood fast because it seemed just better like as a card draw engine. And once you transform it with the scarab God, like you're, you're just unbeatable. You're in God mode. Sure. Sure. Being able to protect your scarab gods is a uh, completely game changing. Yeah. So black blue is definitely something that uh, I'm looking into for the near future. Maybe if I go to grand prix Pittsburgh or not, I'm not really sure, but either way, I wrote an article about the deck, and I don't know. I, I played a match on camera, I believe, against Jadine, and I'm sure I will continue to like write about it, probably talk about it on the podcast in the near future, and there's always the Patreon for me to post the deck list to, even if I'm not going to be at the event. But I've also just been playing like a lot of Magic Online, too. So do you feel like you owe people some penance right now? Because we certainly did a show entitled the, the Scarab God is Unplayable. So when you put Scarab God in your deck, do, do we owe an apology? I mean, is it just like 
this is what magic is. When we say something's unplayable, you have to understand we mean in the moment it's unplayable. It's it's not eternally uh, barred from the realm of playable cards. Well, certainly when we say stuff like that, it does mean in the moment. But also, I don't think that the Scarab God is particularly good. Like I started with three copies in my deck and I've just been like trimming that number. Like it is a powerful endgame card if you are already in black and blue. But I don't start in black and blue because I want the Scarab God. I started right. in black and blue because I wanted Vraska's Contempt and I wanted Essence Scatter. And then once I was there, it's just like, well, you know, this this thing does kind of fit, right? But it still has the same issues that it had before where if you cast it and they kill it, like if you're under any pressure, you just lose immediately, which is not what you want out of your five drop. Like having to untap with it for it to actually like do anything is just not where you want to be. Right, right. And, and refresh my memory, you did have some copies of Torrential Gear Hulk in your deck as well, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, like Gear Hulk is the actual good win condition. I mean, maybe maybe not against control, but like against control, you're just like trying to bury them with like champions and Bloodfast and Siphoners and stuff. Yeah, I, I really couldn't fathom ever having Scarab God in my deck without that ability to go that bigger route. I mean, that's where I'm, I still find myself from time to time impressed with the Scarab God is when he starts doing the Gear Hulk shenanigans and, and that really shuts the door on the game. But just as like a value card, as a card that you're always playing on turn five, the way the Scarab God used to be, that is not the Scarab God's function anymore. It is a very different card than it used to be. Uh, it has its place, absolutely. And, and like you said, I think the draw to blue, black, are the support cards. It's Bloodfast, Vraska's Contempt are the cards you really want access to, which makes sense as we saw the red decks pick up more and more copies of Rekindling Phoenix, more and more copies of Chandra, more and more copies of, you know, these weirdo planeswalkers, even Angrath, we saw a bunch more Karns. All of those things point you in the direction of really wanting to have access to Vraska's Contempt before. And, and that's what the shift is about more than anything else is just getting those really good blue and black cards back into your deck. Right. I, I think Vraska's Contempt is basically where you want to be right now uh, assuming you don't want to just be the bad guy and play bomac courier or goblin chain whirler however you want to describe yeah. the bad guy i guess so there's obviously a few different ways you could take that and the control decks have moved more towards like the wafo tapa style where it's blue black splashing to fairy and they have the full four vrestis contempts and four torrential gear hulks and I think that that plan is fine and maybe that deck is a little bit better against like actual red black, like the slower versions. But I think that deck is worse against red than uh, just like black blue mid range would be. I could see that. I, I also want to take a moment to point out as much as I agree with you that that's the way control is trending right now. I, I would say I expect more and more Esper to be floating around more and more Waffle Tapa style the decks that did well at the Euro GP anyway were blue-white control decks. Those were the decks that made it into the top eight. It was, it was Martin Dang, and I don't remember who the, the other player on blue-white was, but it was, it was one approach-style blue-white deck and one pull-from-tomorrow-style blue-white deck, you know, kind of going back a few weeks into the format. It, it's not these newfangled Esper control decks that found success, at least in the European metagame. So something just to keep note of, it, it seems maybe these old tools aren't as obsolete as we thought they were. Maybe not, but... The, the white cards just still seem pretty bad to me. Uh, like, Settle the Wreckage isn't getting any better, you know? If anything, it just gets, like, worse and worse the more people are used to playing against it and everything. And I think that with all the 
red black decks having access to duress and now knowing like when to time that card correctly and like maximally punish settle the wreckage like i just don't want to be leaning on that card yeah i I think that's a fair point It's, it's not the card it was a few weeks ago for sure but those decks have other avenues of success that they can pursue and you know i don't know how much we really talked about the inclusion of approach but it's something i've kind of come along on when you think about how these the blue white versus black red matchups play out i think over and over you're seeing the black red decks actually be very comfortable in the long game very prepared to play the argul's bloodfast game the the value planeswalker game the sit on my duresses until I actually need them game. All those games are games that Black Red have, has played very effectively over the last few weeks. So I really like the concept of playing a card I absolutely abhor. Like, I, I hate approach as a card. It always seems like a win more, a lazy way out. But when you look at what's going on in the matchup, it does make some sense right now. And, you know, I, I didn't think I'd be saying that any, anytime soon, but I, I'm kind of on board with these approach decks right now. I was still mostly anti-approach until I did play against it from the red-black side, and I thought that having Duress and Doomfall and stuff like that would just allow me to keep them off of the second copy of Approach, or like even the first to make it harder for them to set up the second copy, right? But the games just mm-hmm. didn't play out that way. Like Between Teferi and Search for Escanta, I mean, they see a lot of cards, Glimmer too, and like you said, you're like you're used to just grinding them from the red black side also, but you just don't realize like how easy it is for them to find one specific card. So while I could still play those long games, like approach was just a thing that like actually clocked you and just kind of like went over the top of you and made all of your like grindy stuff, just mostly irrelevant. Yeah. A really nice piece of deck building. Like I, I guarantee that the people who found approach, I mean, I think the credit mostly goes to, to Genesis from the last pro tour. I have a feeling they have a lot of the same, preconceptions about approach that i hold that you hold that it's just not an actually very good magic card not something you really want to be including in these kind of teferi win condition control decks but in this spot i do think it has merit and it it, it takes a lot of uh number one swallowing your pride you have to kind of go back on your word when you said you didn't think a card was very good and now it's the main part of your strategy it really takes some discipline in deck building and you know to the same extent kind of you picking up the scarab god takes the same thing like okay i bashed the scarab god for weeks and weeks but now i see this is actually where we need to be and it's it's just a good lesson i think for our listeners like you you can have all these feelings about a card you can have hatreds for a card you can say this card's unplayable but if you actually are completely disqualifying it from the card you're considering you're doing yourself a disservice you always have to be open to all of these possibilities yeah of course everything is cyclical and uh again i do want to state that the scare of god is is not great or anything but like neither is approach it just like serves a specific purpose rather than being one of the pillars of the format but the rest of the deck is great like Siphoner against the non-red decks is still just as incredible as it used to be. And I found that against at least the slower red decks that mostly aren't doing anything until they play Chain Whirler, like there are just games where like you get to Essence Scatter that thing and just run away with the game uh, thanks to Siphoner. And, you know, there are games where like they draw Chain Whirler, you don't draw Siphoner, or you draw Siphoner, they don't draw Chain Whirler, you know? So it, it, it ends up lining up very rarely where they actually get to eat your siphoner. So I've actually been pleased with it. And, you know, Kevin played them in the sideboard of his Pro Tour deck, but I think that was just kind of nonsense. 
So you're you're a main deck guy. You think Siphoner? You just you you just eat it when you lose one to a Chain Whirler. It's doing so much for you in so many other games that bearing the cost those few times you do actually have to bear it. Totally worth it. Well, it's just very unlikely that you cast it on turn two, and like when you're on the draw, right? Like, aren't you just trying to do something else at that point? Right. I think a lot of the times when we make up these worst case scenarios in our head, we forget the fact that we have agency. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're not required yeah. to just play your siphoner on turn two. Even if you have no other options, you can pass. I mean, you get to, sh- you get to fashion the game in the way you want always. That That's what a good magic player should be doing. You should be trying to dictate the terms of the game. And if you go back, you know, talking about Kevin again. And, and by now, our listeners should be, have had a chance to listen to the the Kevin Jones bonus episode that we put out. I had a really good time talking with Kevin. But there was a game at, at his Pro Tour where he was playing for top eight and his opponent had a Goblin Chain Whirler in play and just never attacked with it into his champion wits. And, you know, the rule is you attack with, you're the aggressive deck. You have to attack with your Goblin Chain Whirler. But that's not what the game was about. And you're able to change what, what the game is about as you see fit. So just don't play your siphoner on turn two if there's other viable things to be doing. You can you can set yourself up for success in other spots by not just playing cookie cutter magic and not being afraid to get creative. Yeah, another thing is that a lot of the time against the red decks, like casting siphoner on turn two isn't your best play. You would much prefer to hold open essence scatter or cast down or what have you. And then the siphoner doesn't really do a whole lot later, but... Todd Anderson noted during the Envy that like Siphoner was almost always just like a dead draw against the mono red decks anyway. And like, if it ends up dying to Goblin Chain Whirler, like it's not that much different than if it had just stayed in play, you know, like doesn't actually help you that much. Yeah. It kind of already sucked. So why not? Why not? Why worry that it got a little bit suckier? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, unless red is 50% of the metagame or something, but at that point, it's like you should be building a deck that just like hates on red, right? And black blue midrange doesn't exactly do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A positive matchup, I think for sure, but no, it's 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 not a directly hateful deck. It, it is positive slightly against red black, and is definitely a dog to mono red. But I have some essence extractions in my sideboard right now that have been helping a decent amount. Okay, so so you believe there's plans you can make for for post board games against mono red anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, for the most part, I'm not sideboarding much against them. It's like the the siphoners are obviously coming out. But past that, my main deck has a bunch of cards that are already pretty good against red black. And like that, that was a very cognizant thing, you know. But going forward, there's definitely a lot of different builds I want to try. Like I want to try Freebooter uh, to crew Aether Sphere Harvester and like give you a little bit more play against control and cheaper interaction and stuff. So I don't know that there, there's still some work to be done. What about a third color? Any, anything in a third color appeal to you right now? I mean, blue is kind of a splash in the deck already. So if it were a third color, I, I think you would just be white, black, splashing blue. And I've kind of gone down this rabbit hole and I've certainly like played against some of these decks and some of these decks have been doing well, but it just ends up being like, you know, you're, you're white, black and you're splashing for like, syncopate or essence scatter and then you have scarab god or teferi at the top end and those aren't even necessarily the cards that i would want in my white black deck like obviously teferi is good but teferi is so much better when you have like a lot of good instant speed interaction not a bunch of like sorcery speed permanence you know 
Sure, it's one of those things where you're defaulting to a, what, what's clearly a very powerful card, but you're not maximizing it. So you get to cover up some of the fact that you know it's not optimized in your deck just on its power level. But usually that's not going to be the correct deck building approach to take. Yeah, I mean, you can jam all mythic rares and do okay, right? Like that is kind of what the various Jun decks of these formats do. But I, I don't think it is correct. I don't think it gives you the best chance to win. Yeah, never been my style. You, you feel it the second you sit down with that deck and, and you know, you draw your openers and they're super clunky and you're like, what's my cohesive strategy other than just like, mm, this card's really good. I hope it carries the day. Like that's not the way the best magic decks are built. Do those decks have success sometimes? Absolutely. But they never feel quite right to me. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So there there are options for third colors. I mean, I, I briefly looked at the Grixis decks too. And I haven't completely ruled those out, I suppose, but uh, it, it just doesn't seem like something I'm particularly interested in because the red cards, like playing Rekindling Phoenix and Chandra in that deck might be a necessity or like maybe Karn over Chandra or whatever, but I don't think I would want Glorybringer. You'd probably want two copies of the Scarab God and then a couple copies of Torrential Gearhulk and then you're like blue black splashing for goblin chain whirler off of all these duels and maybe like some red removal doesn't really help you do anything right like what do you actually want out of these colors i do think that white black with or without a splash like that core is still quite strong but again like i I think that that is just like another deck that is you know slightly weaker to red decks than you would want to be Yeah, and that's definitely, I I think that's where all of your deck building has to start right now. It doesn't have to be the be-all, end-all. It's not to say that if you have to, you know, fix your red matchup in post-board games that your deck is unplayable, but you have to be cognizant of it and and you have to make sure you have a plan going forward. Yeah, it's a litmus test for sure. And if I felt like going into the Invitational, I needed to be able to beat red, I probably wouldn't have played black-blue. I, I don't know what I would have played, like maybe just mono red and try and get under the mirrors or test like the flame of Keld mono red and see if that has a huge edge, which it might. I'm not sure yet. And just kind of go from there. But I I don't think you need to be 100% against them. You know, like as long as you have a, a puncher's chance, like you, sh- that's fine. You're not going to play against red every round. Sure. And sometimes that's what like the red decks role in the format is. It's just to punish bad draws to take its wins when it can. And there's not always going to be a 100% answer. Like sometimes you just have to live with the fact that these hyper aggressive red decks are a check on the format. Or in the case of like the red black deck, these really efficient, uh, super powerful decks are always going to have 50% matchups across the board. And and that's what kind of format are built on a lot of the time. So I, I see a lot of complaining about this format and it's not unjustified. There, there are some problems Goblin Chain Whirler is certainly a problem. It stifles diversity. But I, I think people giving up on the format just aren't trying hard enough. There's definitely inroads to be made and, and still a lot of interesting stuff coming up, I think, on a week-to-week basis. Really, every week, there's something different going on. The cycle keeps moving on and on and on. And, and you know, Blue Black, which was nowhere just a few weeks ago, is now a very prominent player, I would say, in the metagame. So it's interesting to see how we keep moving forward. Yeah, Esper too. Yep. Uh, so what do you think I played in modern at the Invitational? It felt like you were really high on Mardu going into, uh, going into the Invitational. So that's my guess. I'm assuming you picked up Mardu. I did play Mardu. Yeah. 
You're pretty transparent. I, I can tell when you're like, you know, you're, you're being open-minded. You're, you're taking my advice. You're listening to all the information out there. But you had a little bit of Mardu in your heart going into this weekend. It was pretty clear. So look at the day two metagame breakdown for the Envy. Are you on that page? Uh, give me one second. I can get there. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at this metagame breakdown now. Uh, <laughs> by far, most played deck Jeskai Control. Tons of humans, tons of affinity, uh, and then Mardu Pyromancer, just below that, blue-white control. This is a very favorable metagame for Mardu Pyromancer, in my estimation. Dude, tell me what the bad matchups are. I see five mono-green Tron decks lurking a little bit further down the list. Uh, Burn, probably not great. Um, Hexproof, still problematic. So all of these are, are further down on the list, though, for sure. All right, check this out. I have... Four Brutality, three Campbell for Burn. I had okay, that sounds that sounds better. I had three in Staring Bridge, two Explosives, and two Wear Tear for Boggles. Decent. For Tron, I had Stone Cold nothing except for the Blood Moon's main deck. Oh, I, I hope we're getting to an end of this story where Khan just ruins your day for you. Oh, yeah, you know. But continue. You know that round one and round two of day two, I played against like two of the six Tron people in the room. <laughs> Of course you did. Of course. Well, that's the way Karn operates. He he waits till you're at your absolute absolute weakest, and then Karn will show up and ruin your day every single time. I I think that I was mathematically favored in this tournament. After looking at this metagame breakdown and thinking about my list and everything, I'm like, hey, I I still kind of like it. Look, looking at at this metagame breakdown, I I would have played Mardu Pyromancer as well. I mean, you're you're a sizable favorite, I think, against the top three decks. Uh, that showed up, and they're a pretty good percentage of the field. I, I would say the top three decks probably comprise somewhere in the neighborhood of like 35 to 40% of the field, which is a really big percentage for modern. It, it doesn't seem to me like you could have done much better than Mardu Pyromancer as your deck choice. Let me ask this. Did things? Did your math check out? Were you as favored against Jeskai Control as you anticipated? Is the humans matchup still leaning your way, even if it is kind of close? I'm of the opinion that Affinity is okay. I could be wrong on that, though. Correct me if I am. Just as a deck? No, no, your matchup as Mardu Pyromancer. Oh, yeah, opinion. yeah, yeah. No, the, the the Affinity matchup, I would assume, is positive. Affinity is a deck I haven't played against too much, but, like, you have a ton of spot removal, Kolagon's Commands, and Lingering Souls. Like, how bad can your matchup be? Like, the, the worst thing going for you is the fact that Young Pyromancer is kind of a blank against them. Like, your defensive creatures don't, really block sure. anything of theirs but you you get to kill everything basically uh just guy control i actually played against zero times so the blood moon's main deck were just as a concession to things like just guy and uh trying to have like a little bit of additional hate against them they were obviously just a complete joke against tron they did nothing mm-hmm. yeah that's the way it goes <laughs> i've been telling yep. people that for a while now yeah so uh for vegas this weekend i think i'm cutting the blood moons just i'm, I'm off it so I have to ask, I mean, had you played against the expected metagame, you, you wouldn't have been unhappy with those blood moons, right? Uh, it depends. Like, if you think that I need them against Jeskai, then sure. But I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I also think, well, I'm doing spell slinging tomorrow. And if I get to play any modern, and I assume that will be the most popular format by far, I'm going to test out some Knight's Whispers, which should also help in the Jeskai matchup. Oh, that's a cool card. I always like when Night Whispers show up. I don't, I don't know why. It's not like it's this particularly flashy card, but whenever I see it pop up in Modern, I get excited. Yeah. 
Me too. And I picked up some Japanese ones, so. Now you have to play them. You're basically priced in yeah. at this point. I'm locked in, yeah. Uh, the steering bridges were also very bad for me, but uh, looking at this metagame breakdown, I was considering cutting them, but yeah, there is Hollow One, Hexproof, Dredge to some degree, like the Eldrazi decks. Yeah, there are some decks that maybe I want to keep the bridge against. My humans opponents have been terrified of Blood Moon. Absolutely terrified. I've seen so many games on the human side where they just get absolutely shut out of the game. And and you wouldn't think they'd be that vulnerable. They have, first of all, very quick starts. They have Noble Hierarch. They have uh, Aether Vial. So you would assume that they're able to play around Blood Moon to some extent. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's a blank against them by any means, but they do have Wiggle Room. But so often I just see a Blood Moon in play against a human player and they just sit there and wait to die. Yeah. I mean, they'll have four creatures in play or a vile or a noble hierarch or they'll draw their planes, you mm-hmm. know. But my opponents were like preemptively boarding in Reclamation Stage just for Blood Whoa. Moon and ending up hitting my ensnaring bridges, which was definitely a feel bad. And then I like Blood Moon was like the number one name for Meddling Mage also. It was bizarre. Like those were in my sideboard. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can support Blood Moon being the first name with Meddling Mage. I, I, what can I say? Maybe they listen to the cast and they know you were high on Blood Moon. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it seems like... This was in post-board games. If they followed me at all, they would know that I just board up Blood Moon. The rule, though, with like Medley Mage is you name the card you can't beat, right? Like That's, that's the default play with Medley Mage. Is this is the card that beats me, so this is what I'm going to name every time. So should they know that you boarded out your Blood Moon? Sure, you can make that argument. But if they're like, okay, the only way I lose this game is if he kept in his Blood Moons and I don't name it with this meddling mage, then you can see how they got to that point. But it, it's problematic, certainly, if, if people are that prepared for your kind of newfangled plans against a lot of these decks. Because the Blood Moons were gone from this deck for a while. Nobody was playing Blood Moon uh, in the weeks following your Pro Tour success. They kept getting trimmed and, and soon there were no copies whatsoever. So now that people have come back around to fearing this card, I mean, that's the way Blood Moon works, right? It's at its best when it's not being respected. Yeah, exactly. The thing with Meddling Mage and like naming the card that you're most scared of just doesn't really make sense to me because what I am scared of from humans, like as the humans player, is having one of my cards just be Grizzly Bear. <laughs> That's fair. Not really what you're looking for in most cases. And like, they just lost. They they just lost to my other stuff. And I just like let their Grizzly Bear sit there doing nothing. So were there spots where, you know, they made this play of naming Blood Moon where you're thinking to yourself, oh, geez, if they name, you know, whatever, Call Against Commander, they name... And Snaring Bridge, there's no way I can win this game. Or was it just like kind of one of those spots where Medley Mage just wasn't that good? Well, you can always name Lightning Bolt. You can always name the Faithless Looting that's in my graveyard. You can name Reveler, you know? Like, there's so many cards that do something versus Blood Moon where, you know, they had three creatures in play, you know? It it just wouldn't do right, anything. Right, Okay. Uh, I don't know. The more I talk about this, I guess, the the more... I am kind of convinced that I should probably keep my same sideboard or like pretty close to the same sideboard, even though I think the ensuring bridges are going to be targeted by people and like they know mm. that they're coming now. But I don't I don't know. Magic's hard. <laughs> Magic is hard. I agree with that takeaway 100%. Well, if you were going to Las Vegas, what would you play? Do you really have to do you really have to finish this question? I, I think you know the answer to that. I, I mean, if you look at 
I'm kind of picking and choosing my results now, cherry picking where I want to apply my typical Karn logic. But if, if you look at the top eight from the Invitational, I believe is the one I want to pull up, which I'm I'm doing right now. Give me one moment. Infect and Ironworks, yeah. those are the decks you want to play against? No, no. I, I, I certainly am not comfortable there. Although, is Ironworks that awful? It may, it may not be that awful. I, honestly, I don't know. I haven't played against it in a bunch. In fact, you're completely dead. You have no chance whatsoever. But other than that, your matchups are still fine. And if you look again at the metagame percentages, the most played deck was Jeskai Control. And that's kind of where we're at right now. We want to target that deck. What do I think will be the most played deck at GP Vegas? I think it's going to be Jeskai Control still. And, and I could happily play Tron into that metagame. But... You having described, you know, your matchups against the expected field too, they're even better than Tron's. I mean, you had kind of a hard lock on those first three archetypes, whereas, again, as the Tron player, I'm only saying I'm super favored against the most played archetype. So I could see myself picking up Pyromancer as well. I think it's a totally defensible choice right now. Um, Outside of that... I mean, I'm not looking to make any infect moves right now. I just think the deck is is kind of lacking in power level. It lined up really well here. It looked very impressive in uh, Aaron's hands, but I don't think anything has changed where this is like actually the correct deck to be playing right now. But what is happening is that the fundamental turn is accelerating a little bit. Like I think that's the key takeaway is, is we're looking for some fast combo right now. And when things slow down and people are playing things like Jeskai Control and then people pick up Tron in response to Jeskai Control makes a lot of sense, right? It's, it's just this never-ending cycle that goes round and round. And the fundamental turn of modern just kind of floats around this 3.5 to 5 range over and over. And figuring out which fundamental turn you're on for which week will really tell you where you want to be for deck selection. I agree with that completely. I never thought I would actually live in a world where Jeskai Control was like the most played archetype in modern. Like that deck has always historically been overplayed i think just because people like it mm-hmm. but now it's it's legitimately good and people are playing it a bunch maybe again more than they should be i don't know like e- despite that like tron did not put up a good performance i mean maybe there weren't very many in the room you wouldn't know that from my pairings you know but i don't know you would think that tron would perform a little bit better i thought so i thought this would be a pretty pretty big tournament for tron um you know, there's some hesitance to pick up the deck. Um, at least historically, there has been. People don't want to be Tron players for whatever reason. Uh, that faded for a period of time going back about four or five months ago, and, and the deck put up dominant results. So who knows? Maybe this is this is the spot to do it for GP Vegas. I, I feel like some weirdo deck is going to come out of left field, like Kiki Court or something nonsensical. That's what always happens in these tremendous Vegas modern tournaments. Is a deck that nobody expects kind of goes super deep uh so maybe it'll be another instance of that yeah vegas last year was like a lot of death and taxes and uh monty davuti winning the tournament with affinity and stuff just like a, a basically a lot of unexpected stuff i guess there was like the taking turns deck that made top eight also it's just like what the hell right right things went crazy in vegas and and i think the year before that it was won by kiki court if i remember correctly at a time when that deck was not super dominant so yeah, weird things always happen in Vegas. I'm, I'm not putting any bets on, on what the eventual winner is going to be. It could be absolutely anything. Well, my my preparation, uh, I got home from my five-week-long trip on Monday. We are recording this Wednesday night. My preparation on Tuesday was jamming a bunch of leagues with various decks, trying to find something that like just kind of felt good. And it was things, you know, like I, I made a list of like, 
five to 10 decks where I'm like, oh, maybe this would be a good choice, right? And I just got to not slowly, but not not quickly narrow things down too. So I don't know. I ended up trying uh, a couple different builds of Eldrazi. I think Bant Eldrazi might actually be good. That's a blast from the past. I haven't heard much respect for Ban Eldrazi over these past few, I mean, maybe almost like a half year now since anyone really was riding that train hard. Why do you think it's particularly well positioned right now? If if humans is downtrending and like these turn three decks are picking up and like Tron is picking up, I like Eldrazi's spot a little bit better than humans. And I think that any deck that has things that don't get bolted and has cavern of souls. Like you're, you're probably going to be pretty good against just guy, no matter what I can buy that. So I did bring my Bant Eldrazi cards with me. I am spell slinging with the deck tomorrow. We'll see how that goes. Not like the, the greatest form of playtesting or whatever, but I don't know, maybe if it, if it feels good enough, like we'll see. Uh, the other thing that I did when I was on the plane on the way here was build like a weird version of humans with, no meddling mages main deck, two experiment ones, and two sin collectors. Talk me through those changes. I mean, I'm assuming you're anticipating less combo, less storm type things, and you just want more general disruption and a little bit faster clock. Is that fair? I think meddling mage just kind of sucks, period. And I think right now, the way the humans decks are built, they have 12 ones, a bunch of twos, and then a few threes. And I just don't think that spread on the curve is correct. The games where you don't have a one drop are like the hardest ones to win. And Experiment 1 does like a pretty good champion of the Parish Impression. And it's another thing that lives through Supreme Verdict. Okay. I'm worried about awkward Experiment 1 draws where it's not getting as large as you would expect it to. You know, maybe my fears are overblown. I I obviously don't have a ton of Experiment 1 humans games under my belt right now. Um, But your point of being hyper-reliant on one drops definitely buying that the games where humans doesn't have a one drop it's like what is this deck here for it feels completely different as far as power level goes and it's very difficult for them to mount an offense when they've taken their first turn off there they need those noble hierarchs they need those champions of the parish and maybe they need their experiment once times will time will tell i mean as the fundamental turn speeds up a little bit certainly there's more pressure on that too correct and i I think that experiment one is probably the next best card but also you're talking about like oh it it not growing as quickly and like maybe you have to sequence awkwardly or whatever to make sure you get maximum use out of it or whatever but like i don't think i really care the seventh card in the deck is kind of a luxury already and like you're just going to like the games are going to be over before you deploy your entire hand for the most part. And if the games are going on longer than that, it's probably because you didn't have a one drop in the first place. Like honestly, like one mana one, one might just be fine. That is a bold claim for modern for sure. It is, it is obviously. And like a lot of that is hyperbolic or whatever, but I mean, if it's like a two, two and not necessarily always a three, three, like, there's always Thalia's Lieutenant and stuff to get it over that hump and to make it so you actually have the potential regen. And I think the stats for the deck just in general kind of line up pretty well to actually being able to make it a 3-3 relatively consistently. So I don't think it's bad. Like, it's certainly not Champion of the Parish level good, but it is definitely the next best thing. Yeah, the tribal synergies do do a lot to mask the inconsistencies inherent in the card. That's for sure. You you can you can cover up some of those problems with things like values, lieutenant, and you know the fact that it triggers your champions is, is worth a lot as well. So, 
<laughs> I, I don't want to give you a wholehearted endorsement. I feel like it's one of those things where if I gave you an opinion now, it would just be complete nonsense. I, I would have to play some games with Experiment 1 in my humans deck. Uh, but I, I like your thinking. Certainly, fundamental turn is key in mind. It's something that I always try and be cognizant of when I'm choosing my deck for a tournament. Uh, and, and I've had a lot of success just moving up and down that sliding scale. So sometimes just a very delicate tweak, just pushing humans. You know, if humans' fundamental turn is sitting around, say... 4.2 right now and this inclusion moves it to a flat 4.0 that can make a world of difference in a tournament yeah and it means you're probably mulliganing less and everything with sin collector i think it's maybe just a better meddling mage against most of the decks like meddling mage is not necessarily difficult to name a card that your opponent has in hand but it is very difficult to get it to like stick and actually continue to matter especially as the Jeskai decks like dirty up their sweepers. I mean, like all of these decks have ways to remove a meddling mage, especially at this point, mm -hmm. you know, whereas Sin Collector is just like actual disruption. It works with Phantasmal Image. Like it, it kind of works with Freebooter too, because you just get to like really go after their hand instead of like, well, I take one of their rituals, but they still have two more, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you can make an argument that meddling mage is very much a relic of the time at which this deck was born. I mean, this don't forget that the humans deck was born in an era where Storm was the dominant deck. It absolutely was defining the format. It was it was the problem child. It was the deck that everyone was gunning for. And Medley Mage was great in that spot. It did a fantastic job of giving an otherwise, you know, an archetype which you, you would expect to not have a ton of success against combo players. Uh, you certainly had a fighting chance. And in fact, you were favored. You know, humans was able to take the lead against Storm by the inclusion of things like Freebooter and and four copies of meddling mage along with your phantasmal images you took what was historically a very difficult matchup and turned it positive but the fact is that matchup doesn't exist anymore uh, only K caleb is winning with storm nobody else on the planet um so it, it certainly slid far far down the ranks uh, and maybe it's time for a retool again yeah i think so i mean for too long the human deck i think has just been very stagnant in its main deck choices like there's always like the one or two flex slots I think that is even more apparent considering that Jeskai is the most popular deck and Mardu Pyromancer is getting more popular and, and things like that. And people are still only playing three copies of Thalia. It's just like it, the deck started with four because Storm was a big deck. And then, you know, someone won or top aided a tournament with three and then everyone has just been copying that since then. And I, I think that four Thalia is just correct right now. Yeah, it's it seems like quite often the most impactful card in the deck. Uh, I would be playing four copies for sure. And, and some of the nonsense cards I just can't get on board with. Like Restoration Angel is one that has felt very win more to me. You know, it's nice to get those extra chunks of value, especially in your post-board games over very specific targeted cards. But man, a, a four drop non-human is asking so much from your deck. So I don't know. I, I think there is room for this archetype to continue to evolve. And really, uh, all archetypes in modern, when the format is in this constant state of flux and the card pool is so vast, there's always some little thing you could be looking to do get, to get a little bit more edge in your upcoming tournament. Right. And that's not even talking about the sideboard where I take a lot of issues with like the cards that people are playing where it just seems like a lot of those things are just a holdover from, like you said, a, a relic of a previous format, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of low-impact cards still floating around those sideboards. So I have a day to decide what to play. Those are basically my three options right now. Uh, I did not get to see you before I left, so I don't have a physical Tron deck on me. 
Although you were going to play Tron, you were just humoring me. Let's be serious. There, there is no chance you're sleeping up, Karn. I have, I have basically no idea what it would take for me to want to play Tron in this tournament. So, one day, one day it just clicks. I don't know what to tell you. I was never a Tron player, and then I was just like, well, I think this deck might actually be great, and it was. I was correct. You know, I used to play Blue White Tron a lot, right? Like you could play fully powered Jund with like Bloodbraid and Deathrite Shaman, and I was like, nah. Hollowed Fountain, Urza's Tower, let's go. Right, no, I used to play the blue-white version as well, and I actually think if we go way back in time, you and I used to collaborate a lot in that deck. I, you know, the Unburial Rites package with, like, the Elshnorn and the Ionas and all your uh, your Signets for generating mana. That deck was fantastic. I loved playing that deck. That deck was good. It just hasn't gotten, like, any playable cards. Right, and it lost the Eye of Ugin, which was an, a very important card in in that deck for sure. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you you didn't need it, like... Emrakul was one way to get inevitability. Mindslaver's another. Ugin Haven and the Spirit Dragon's another. Like you, I think that's replaceable. It's certainly more replaceable than in actual Tron. Yeah, there's more flexibility in in the. Uh, I mean, because they play a different game. They play a fair game at certain points in the curve, and then things just go absolutely bonkers later on. Yeah, man, that deck was fun. It was. I agree. All right. Uh, any vote one way or the other on my three choices? I'm going to push you towards Mardu Pyromancer. I, have, hearing you describe your Invitational, looking at the field, it seems like you were kind of destined for a good result here and, and things just went the opposite way. So when that happens, you have to be honest. Uh, I think it's fair to say you made a good assessment of the field and things just didn't work out on that particular day. To me, that means you run it back. You're comfortable with the deck. You have a plan. No reason to jump ship right now. Well, in addition to the, those two Tron decks that I played against, round one, I played against Red Green Scapeshift. That was my loss on day one. I was basically X in big mana. I also lost to AJ Kerrigan playing John Death Shadow. But I, I think I made uh, a few mistakes that, that cost me. They're the like judgment errors that ended up, or judgment calls that ended up being errors. Right. But I don't know. It's it's tough when, like looking at these metagame breakdowns, it, it just like kind of makes me, angry or like question what i'm doing we're like gp phoenix i went oh three against tron with humans and like finished x and five or whatever and then this tournament i'm like oh three against big mana and it's just like at what point am i just gonna say like enough is enough like an, an x and four finish would be nice you know I, I would probably take it but i don't know like is it actually me like getting unlucky in these pairings or or, or what is the deal you know like is, is my mediocre record just like hanging out in the Tron bracket? I don't know. I, I just don't think that, I, I mean, what could you be doing? Are, are you saying you should be making concessions to these decks? Because I don't think the concessions are getting a big enough return on investment for them to be logical. Like you, sure, go ahead and play four Fulminator Mages. Like you're still not winning the matchup. Go ahead and play Molten Rain. You've got a chance now, but you're probably still not winning the matchup. So it's like, why are you jumping through all of these hoops to, you know, attempt to fix a matchup, which really can't be fixed. This is, this is your lot in life. You have to dodge these decks and the percentages are telling you, you have a very good shot in any given tournament in being successful at dodging these decks. It hasn't worked out lately, but you got to play the numbers. You got to be logical. And I, I don't think it's time for you to completely retailer your sideboard to have, you know, what a 40% matchup against these decks. Maybe if you build the proper sideboard, I'm not talking about my sideboard. I'm talking about just playing a different deck entirely. But that doesn't seem right based on the numbers. If every time I play against a big mana deck, I just lose immediately. Maybe I'm supposed to be playing something else. 
It, it's not that far gone, though. You know that. I mean, these. I'm not saying these matchups are good, but you have a fighter's chance. I, I've lost. Uh, I, I've lost these matchups before, as Tron. You can certainly lose them. It happens. So I, I'm sure it feels like it sometimes in the moment. It's frustrating, especially when you're on a cooler against these decks and you haven't pulled them out in a long time. You're playing a lot of them. I get where you're coming from, but I think you're being a little bit too results oriented, and I think you're still safe with this deck if you feel like you have the other matchups where you want them. I realize it is small sample size. I am fully aware of where you are coming from. I am basically just asking a question as to like whether or not I am basically making a mistake by playing these decks that continually lose the same thing. Regardless of like numbers and whatever, like am I supposed to be playing like some combo deck that has a chance against everyone or whatever? Instead of like these these mopey mid-range decks, like Right, right. I, I think in most formats, like your, your point has a lot more merit, but this is just, there, there's some of this inherent in modern. There's some of this kind of, you can't fix everything. You're always going to be vulnerable to something. And I think you're choosing the right thing to be vulnerable to. And that's all I can really say. I mean, if, if you feel it's time to be vulnerable to something else, go for it. But it could be the week where, you know, like, okay, I want to be vulnerable to the turn three combo decks right now. And for whatever reason, in fact, comes out of the woodwork. It's inherent in modern. Uh, and I think based on the evidence you have and, you know, the information that's out there, you're picking the right spot to be soft. But, you know, if you want to roll the dice, try something else, go for it. That's kind of the beauty of modern. You might find success in a spot you never expected to. Word. I think I will stick with Mardu, but perhaps I will have some sort of revelation tomorrow and we shall see. Obviously, I'll be posting my deck list and everything that'll probably go up roughly along the same time as this podcast goes up. So you'll get to be able to see what deck I eventually selected. Can't wait to see. Other than that, we have some core 2019 previews. Looks like 98 out of 280 cards so far. Feels a little early for these previews, doesn't it? I was really surprised when these cards started popping up already. There's only two months between PT Dom and PT Minneapolis. Yeah, that's what's that's what's causing this. Uh, what where did these cards come from? Type feeling. Yeah, so it does feel kind of strange, especially since there are so many of these cards previewed so far. But I think they wanted to just get an idea out there of like, hey, like this is kind of going to be like what the set is like. Like, there's a lot of nostalgia inherent here. There's a lot of like very good, solid, like functional reprints, both for limited and for constructed. And I think people now have a pretty good idea of like, hey, you know, like the, the core set is back. Like this is very, very much a core set. This is not like Magic Origins or whatever. Like this is this is like some M12 stuff going on here. Yep, it, it feels like we're back in time a little bit. This is, this is what I think of when I think core set for sure. So uh, some notable cards that are hanging out include uh, Shock, Lightning Strike, and Llanowar Elves. So given that, it seems like those cards will probably be around for a, a little while at least. Mm -hmm. Yep, a little bit more time for those cards. And it seems good. I, I mean, I, I think Llanowar Elves, it's hard to say exactly how much Chain Whirler has invalidated the results of this experiment. Um, but on the whole, I've been pretty comfortable with Llanowar's place in the format. And it seems like it's going to spend most of its time with Chain Whirler anyway. So it's maybe not a question we even have to ask. Uh, I mean, we'll see. There there are talks of Chain Whirler getting banned and stuff like that. We'll see if that actually takes or not. And I'm not convinced that it's entirely necessary, but we shall see. Yeah, me neither. But yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want to speculate on that. I think I've made my, 
my feelings pretty clear. I, th- I think there's still room to explore here. We're not at banned territory yet in my eyes. I mostly feel the same way. Mostly. Good hedge. But <laughs> yeah. No, it's like my my thing is that I feel like that there are some things that they could experiment with doing like, you know, just banning it for four months or whatever until rotation. Sure. I, I mean, I, I would be okay with that because I think that's an interesting new format. A lot of decks are unlocked. But the cost of bannings is so high and it's like they're trying to break this this trend of this is how you deal with problems is by banning them away. There there has to be a point where it's more about metagame adaptation. And I think that can still happen right now. I hope that can still happen right now. If proven wrong, I'll eat my words. I, I mean, my, my, my hope for a continued presence of Goblin Chain Warlord doesn't really say anything about its power level. It says more about like what I feel the cost of bans are and whether I think this is worth bearing that cost again. Right, but what if what if they were transparent about only banning it for four months? How would that affect things as much? To me, it, it wouldn't affect me at all. I mean, like I, I'd be totally cool with it. I would have no objection to that. But <laughs> there's a very vocal and fickle isn't the right word because they they have a legitimate complaint. They've seen a lot of the cards that they've spent money on be rendered unplayable over the past few years, and that's problematic. I, I'm. I don't want to come at it from a position of privilege where I don't care about that value loss to a lot of people. That's very important. And it just, it just has to be avoided to the extent it possibly can be avoided right now. It has to be, even if it's just a temporary reprieve and you'll get to use your chain whirlers again. It still scares me a little bit. Fair enough. Uh, Back to M19. Another thing that stands out to me are these cards like Elvish rejuvenator, uh, malicious bugler 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 it's got to be bugler which, right? which one is bugler oh, okay the, the malicious militia blue i don't know yeah, militia, militia, militia bugler is definitely what it is randy bugler got it <laughs> nailed it uh no these these things have like i i would kind of expect these to be like tribal things but they're not they're just like really cool kind of like fixed search your deck sort of effects like the the bugler gets a creature with power two or less from the top five and uh the elvish rejuvenator top four four. oh sure the well the elf is top five so i'm definitely gonna like mess that up and get some warnings at some point yeah you know like when there's grapple with the past and uh vessel of nascency and all that stuff it's just like they're all just in like liliana they're all just different numbers but yeah, like Rejuvenator looks at the top five and gets a land. It's kind of like a fixed Wood Elves. So I like this. I like a very clear way to move away from like searching and shuffling, uh, both for digital client and for real life. So these these are actually pretty nice. Yep, I'm with you there. Uh, good implementation. I think that the power level on these isn't super high. They have a lot of deck building costs. You have to really, really account for the number of cards required in in both these instances i guess less so with the elf i mean, I mean that's a pretty safe hit uh, but i mean i'm not playing it in like my 20 land decks that gets a little sketchy so, right so there there is a point where you have to have a certain number of the cards you're looking for in your deck uh it'll be interesting to see if this is a cycle that kind of continued around the different colors it, it seems like it would be a cycle but yeah it's, it's kind of similar to like auger of bolus and that that sort of thing where you do need to be cognizant of how many hits you actually have in your deck and like make sure the math is good. But also a thing that you have to be aware of is like 
sideboarding and how does that affect things? Like there could be a matchup where you take out a bunch of like your smaller creatures, right? And then Randy Bugler doesn't have a whole lot of things to hit. Yeah, sad Randys. That's no good. You got to make sure you're keeping your ratios intact both in pre-board and in post-board games. Yeah, so depending on what the cycle ends up looking like, it might be kind of tough. And these, like aside from the elf being a thing that, uh, you know, works with Llanowar Elves and Morrowind and stuff like that and kind of gets me excited for, like, these ramp strategies. Uh, the Bugler seems, like, fairly low power level, uh, at least compared to the format as it is now. So maybe these things don't even hit in in standard, at least until, like, after rotation or something. But Possibly, but Bugler could be neat uh, in, like... I feel kind of silly saying this. If they still existed, Oketra Monument strategies. Uh, unfortunately, that's a card that Chain Whirler has really, really beaten up on. Um, but you can see Bugler's application there for sure. Yeah, no, I, I definitely like that card in that sort of deck. Uh, Mentor of the Meek also, potentially. Yep. Yeah, another nice duel there. Uh, we do have our first Planeswalker, Vivian Reed, new character. 3GG, 5 Loyalty. Plus one, look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal a creature or land card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Minus three, destroy target artifact, enchantment, or creature with flying. And minus eight, you get an emblem with creatures you control, get plus two, plus two, have vigilance, trample, and indestructible. So this doesn't really protect herself very well. No, short of the high starting loyalty. I mean, starting on essentially six loyalty is, is pretty good. If it's facing down a single flyer, it can obviously pick off uh, the one flyer. But for a five mana green planeswalker, uh, comparing Vivian to things like Nyssa, which is present right now, uh, I find this card a little bit on the underwhelming side. Not to say I think it's unplayable or anything, but as far as five mana planeswalkers go, this is pretty far down on my list of ones that I've been excited about. It'll probably find a home um, at, at some point as as doing that thing that green, green Planeswalkers always do where they're able to board in a uh, different style of threat in post-board games when they're typically a creature deck, everyone loads up on creature removal and then you go, okay, here's my Green Planeswalker now, deal with that. Um, and I think Vivian is fine in that role, but not particularly exciting. Yeah, Vivian does strike me as more of a sideboard card or potentially a main deck hate card. Like going into Pro Tour Dominaria, like there were actually a lot of targets for the minus three. Like there's there's Heart of Kieran, there's Lyra, you know, some some matchups like maybe like Bestiary if if you have those sorts of things in and like yep. this sort of mirror-ish matchup or whatever, but I don't know, just like not being able to go after like actual creatures or make some sort of creature token or whatever. It doesn't really strike me as a main deck card unless your deck or format is very, very specific. But as a sideboard card, this seems pretty nice. Like kill your cast out, kill your Lyra, draw some cards, whatever. I think I think the clearest thing I can say about my initial assessment of this card's power level was that I wasn't sure if it was an intro deck Planeswalker. So that's kind of where <laughs> I fell on this. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's unplayable, but it's, I'm not super excited about it. Just another tool. Word. What else? Anything else that you're excited about besides Nexus of Fate? I, no, I have to talk about that card now. I've held, I've held my tongue for long enough. I, I don't know if I'm crazy here and I'm seeing something that nobody else sees. This card is very, very, very dangerous and very good. 
Now, there's kind of two parts to the danger here. And the first part is that I don't think we've ever really had that many ways to access additional turns at instant speed. So there's, there's kind of some play that has to come with that for me to really understand the implication of being able to get access to this ability at instant speed. But the more problematic things is that there is a type of deck which benefits dramatically from the number of time walks <laughs> being present in the deck increasing over time. And that's something like Turbo Fog. And essentially, as the game goes on for Turbo Fog, the more and more time walks that are in your deck, the better off you are. And Nexus of Fate, this card reads to me, and I'm going to read it real quick in case people haven't seen it. This is to you, five colorless, uh, instant, take an extra turn after this one. If Nexus of Fate would be put into a graveyard from anywhere, reveal Nexus of Fate and shuffle it into its owner's library instead. Now that clause, the shuffle clause into an, your owner's library, that reads to me as a clause that's designed to prevent shenanigans. Uh, you know, you can't torrential gear hulk back Nexus of Fate is, is the biggest one to come to mind. But I actually think it presents more problems than it solves because it's very easy for me to sketch up a deck that just leans on Nexus of Fate. And as the game goes on, more and more of the deck is time walks. And eventually you're just taking all the turns. I'll give you a sketch right now. There's, there's eight fog effects. There's grow from the ashes to ramp your mana. There is Mirari conjecture, uh, blink of an eye, Nexus of Fate, and just kind of mush all this stuff together with maybe like uh, strategic planning, perhaps. So you're thinning your deck a little more and finding fogs on key turns and getting a return of a sorcery from the Mirari conjecture. Uh, and then you fire off Nexus on your turn where you have the double uh, ability from Mirari conjecture, phase three of the saga, and you're taking three turns now. And as time goes on, your hits of another time walk get higher and higher and higher after every turn. And eventually you're just taking all the turns. Like this deck is very plausible to me. Am I saying it's tier one? I have no way of knowing that. I don't know what else is in this set. I don't know what the format's going to look like. But the bigger problem is I think this is a card that absolutely merits exploration. Whether or not it's tier one, whether or not it's even viable, I want to know how good this card is. I want to know if I can push it in standard. And it's the buy a box promo. The only way to get this card is by buying a box of M19 which is messed up if this card turns out to be even like a quarter as good as I think it is. Even if someone just wants to play this deck at FNM and they need four copies of Nexus of Fate, this seems like a problem to me. And if this deck is actually good, this card's going to be super, super expensive, like prohibitively expensive. And this is something that like Yu-Gi-Oh struggled with for years and the Versus system and all these other card games always had these cards that you could only get through, you know, a lot of times they were included in a magazine or you had to do something goofy to get a copy of this card. Magic has never had anything like that, really. Mana Crypt being like the only exception, but that's from the dark ages of the game. Now we have this again, and, and I just think this card is playable. Am I crazy? Do you look at this card and say there's no way this card sees any play? I wouldn't say no way, but I don't know. Like It, it just doesn't seem like Magic is in a place where stuff like this is doable because there's like Heart of Kirin and Duress and negate and all, all sorts of like different ways to stop these sorts of shenanigans. Like it is possible that this is a thing. I agree with you wholeheartedly though. Like even the fact that like this is non-zero is like pretty silly to have it be the buy a box promo. And not only just for the reasons you mentioned, but like it is it's foil only correct. Supplies are limited. What the hell? 
I, I don't know why this this promotion exists. Like, I, I guess, yeah, like people are more likely to buy boxes or whatever. But like, let's say Nexus of Fate becomes like a $40 card, then like maybe it can't be because the EV of like buying a box outweighs it or Nexus outweighs the EV of buying a box or whatever and all just like equalizes out. I don't know. But like, right. obviously once supplies run out and it's only a secondary market thing, like who knows what happens, but I don't know, man. It, it just seems like kind of a nightmare and the easiest way to not have this sort of nightmare potentially exist is to just not do it. Yeah, I, I think people kind of missed my point when I talked about this card. And it, it wasn't so much that I wholeheartedly believe it's going to define the format. It's just that it shouldn't have the opportunity to come even close. It shouldn't get a sniff of the format. It having potential is too much. And I don't know where things go from here. I mean, hopefully this is as far as things ever get pushed. But if this continues to be a problem, it's it's scary for the future of these bio box promos. That's for sure. Yep, I pretty much agree. So that that's kind of it for M19 at the moment. There are a lot of cards that have been previewed, but again, they're mostly reprints. And uh, the new stuff that I've seen is kind of exciting, not really in a I'm excited to try this in standard type of thing, but like I'm excited to see what the rest of the set holds. And I'm sure more and more cards will get previewed and we'll talk about those uh, relatively soon. But uh, we... Did just hit our stretch goal for a bonus episode a month. So uh, this week we have two episodes that are dropping. Uh, The first one probably came out yesterday or the day before featuring Kevin Jones and his run at Pro Tour Dominaria. And I think that's just going to be the case going forward is we're going to try and do some sort of like timeless sort of episode with either a guest or maybe like a level up episode type of thing. And that's really awesome. So uh, thank you very much to the patrons who helped make this happen and everything. Yeah, that was a super fun episode to do. Uh, You know, Kevin both loves magic and just like wants to learn everything possible about it. Like, I I think he was excited to just like be in the seat and be able to drive the conversation a little bit to see what he could take away from the episode as as much as he wanted to contribute to everyone else, you know? So I think it's going to come off really well. I think people are really going to like hearing his story. Oh, yeah, and I got him so good at the end. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I think he had a level-up moment on the show, so that's really exciting. Uh, other than that, we have our other stretch goal that, I mean, we're, we're a ways away, right? It, but it's a big one, and it's basically just for us to start taking this even more seriously than we are already and get, uh, like, some sort of uh, office space or... Uh, like a really cool studio type of setting and just make even more sweet content, not even just like podcasts and stuff, but I'm sure there will be even more of those. Yeah. And I think I wanted to just like bring a little clarity to that stretch goal because it's like, oh, great. You guys get a studio. That sounds like a lot of fun, but that's not really like what, what that stretch goal signifies. I, I think once we have a studio that we're working out of and, you know, a, a space where we're dedicated to making game content, I mean, that kind of signifies that this this is it for us. This is our jam. We're all in on game content all the time. You guys at that point will have shown a level of dedication to our content, to supporting our content that just can't be ignored. And I'm willing to go ham at that point. Whatever you guys want, 
we'll look into making it. You know, we'll sit down and play commander against each other if that's what it has to be uh, to make you guys happy. It's just obvious at that point that you guys want more of me and Jerry doing cool stuff, teaching magic, talking magic, uh, and we're happy to do that. And I think, you know, having access to something like that will, will definitely facilitate a bunch of really cool new stuff we can do. Absolutely. I'm not sure if or when that stretch goal will ever be hit, but if it ever does, like I'm, I'm going to be super pumped. Yeah. Yeah. Then we get to just go all in and it's going to be awesome. I'm sure. Well, time for question of the week. And uh, again, we give away two packs of game podcast sleeves from Legion supplies to whoever asks in, you know, our opinion, the best question, the question that we want to answer on the show. And this week, that person is Liam. And Liam from the Discord asks, let's say you've identified a breakpoint in a matchup, for instance, in the mono-red standard mirror. I've noticed how cleanly and quickly you can answer their two-drop often dictates flow of the early turns. How do you exploit those breakpoints? Should we be looking for cards that pull us ahead when we fall short, set us up to succeed, or circumvent the interaction entirely and make the game about something else? And this question to me basically just epitomizes what I want this podcast to be about and the type of things that we want to talk about. Maybe not all the time, but definitely at some point, because thinking about the game just like as a whole and like what is actually happening in the games and causing certain things to happen is way more important to me and to figuring out like how magic works and everything and like what cards should go in my deck and everything than just like, oh, like these are the best red cards. So I made a mono red deck, you know. I I couldn't agree more. This this question shows an understanding of how you should be thinking about high level magic. Liam's not looking for just like the quick fix. He's looking for something deeper where now he's gotten to the point where he understands strategically, having played the matchup a hundred times, he's he's able to now see what happens when uh, the two drop play is able to generate tempo and, and take over the board. And he wants to know what the response is to that. And I think my unfortunate answer is that I can't tell you. Because it's so contextual as to what you should be doing in that spot, given the cards available in the card pool, um, you know, how you're slanting the matchup, how your deck is built. It it really merits reconsidering your entire configuration, your entire game plan in the matchup from the ground up. But the key thing is that you understand that there are flashpoints like that that you can really season on. And now at this point, everything you said is exactly what's on the table. You have to consider all of those options because any one of those might be the way that this matchup is completely turned on its head. And you now have a different fundamental understanding than everyone else in the room. And and you see your win rate absolutely skyrocket in mirror matches. And I've seen it happen before. It's very, throughout the history of Magic, there's been many points where Things get stagnant and a a format becomes about a mirror, but someone seizes on a point in that mirror where they go, oh, actually, this is what the mirror matters. Like, this is what matters in the mirror. And I think back to something like team or energy mirrors and the inclusion of cards like Essence Scatter as the format went on. Or even if you go to Worlds and you look at what Huey Owen and Reed did, where they added Torrential Gear Hulks and Glimmer of Genius, they started to understand all of these changes are the results of extrapolating a breakpoint in the matchup and saying, okay, if you can play the matchup in this fashion consistently, you get a long-term edge. And it's really hard to say exactly 
where that edge can be found in your specific example, but it's there and, and you're onto something. And those are the points you really need to apply pressure to right now. My take on this question is like, how do you exploit those breakpoints? I really like just kind of the summarizing the question in that sense. And one thing that I will strongly caution against is that, okay, so like killing their two drop, or if your two drop lives, you are more likely to win the game if either of those things happen. So either you play more things that kill their two drop or you play more two drops yourself. And it can be like a, a dangerous, like slippery slope type of situation where you end up with too many things that kill their two drop and not enough things that, you know, deal with their powerful four drops or not enough pressure of your own. Or maybe you play too many two drops. So you're getting like that lead early, but then, you know, what happens if you don't also have the four drops to capitalize on it? So one of the ways you can look at this is how many ways do you want to answer their two relatively consistently because you've identified how important it is, but you can't run the risk of necessarily like watering down your deck, right? So obviously you could sideboard four Chandra's defeats. And I think if that were like the big breaker in the mirror, then like people would have already been doing it by now. And it's like, you know, you see that number moving up ever so slightly, like it's been two copies and then three copies. And I've seen four occasionally, but it's not the be all end all. And you also need to have like, you know, solid things to do at every spot of the curve. And obviously if you don't remove their two drop or you don't have your own two drop, then like maybe none of the other stuff matters, but like you can't also just focus on only that thing. So similar vein to Brian where I'm just like, I don't know, basically, but the main thing I can do is caution you to not go too far overboard in one direction. Maybe it just means like you're supposed to play an extra Chandra's Defeat or an extra Abraid main deck than people normally do or whatever. But yeah, I think if if Mono Red is the best deck, like it is, it has a chance against control, like a good chance because you have the early aggression in Bowman Courier. You are a favorite against Red Black because you get under them and you don't have things like Heart of Kirin that are kind of high variance you find a way to like break that paradigm and then you just end up like winning a pro tour like why it did, you know? Yeah. Magic's such an interesting and like beautiful game where you can have found this break point and reached this conclusion and figured out something really, really profound and important. And the correct response to it is like, you're supposed to play a shock over your fourth copy of Bomat Courier. You know, something, something that nuanced and that small can be the result of actually identifying something very, very important in the matchup. But the fact that you get to play a game where you have the removal in, you know, 5% more turns uh, or in 5% more games, you have that removal spell that can totally change the course of a tournament and totally dictate your chances at success. So you made a really good point, Jerry. It's like these things do exist. They are important. And you working to identify them is a definite sign of growth as a player. But you, you have to be careful with what you do with it because if you go too far, you can you can torpedo those things real quickly. And like I know I've had experiences like this before. I remember thinking back to uh, Theros Block where like – I don't remember my exact line of thinking, but it was it was something along the same lines of like pack rat turns being really important and – the pack rat sub game taking over a lot of the games, but what actually mattered was something else. So I at one point talked myself into having no pack rats in my mono black deck. 
And that was wrong, like just straight up wrong. The card was too powerful to ignore, but I had a theoretical basis for it. And I think my basis was sound. It's just that I, I carried it much too far and I'd leaned everything into that basis. And in doing so, I ignored one of the most powerful cards in the format. So you have to check yourself. You have to find that sweet spot, but you're certainly asking the right questions and trying to find the right things. So I talked about Flame of Keld earlier. Basically, my hypothesis with that or like that version of the deck where it's like you have Hazaret or or maybe even no Hazarets, but like nothing else above that. And you're just like super low to the ground. You have Gitu Lava Runner, Wizard's Lightning, stuff like that. And that to me, I believe, like it seems like it would have an edge in the Mono Red Mirror. So it's it's kind of also in line with this question where it's like, oh man, killing the two drop is so important because like the one drop's you know, if you have a one drop, it just dies. And if the two, if the two drop lives, then it like snowballs out of control. But like, what if you have three one drops and like, they don't die to chain whirler, right? Like that's another way that you could also approach the situation. And, you know, like look at Aaron Barrich's deck that he used to win the invitational. Uh, he has 12 one drops, wizards, lightning, 22 mountains, four hazards, no other big cards. Like you may have stumbled onto a thing that is like very true and does matter, but you can take it further than just like, oh, I should play an extra thing that kills their two drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, both ends are potentially in play, and that's what makes the game so challenging is you have to find that exact sweet spot. Yeah, so I, I really like this question. I, I will, I'm a sucker for basically any question that forces me to think and talk about things on a holistic level rather than just, you know, like, what's favored in this matchup or like, you know, where do we like to travel or whatever, you know? Yeah, me too. Um, anytime we can get at those, those deeper twinges of theory, I think there's still so much magic to unpack. Like we've been playing this game for 20 plus years and there's, there's concepts that just are completely unexplored. Um, and I hope we get to explore them as time goes on. Cause I, I, I know we flirt with them sometimes. And now that we have access to this fifth cast, I, I have a feeling we're going to get into some of them as time goes on. I think so too. And now y'all basically have the G code. Those of you in the discord who get to ask us questions every week, you can trick us into picking yours pretty easily. I think so. I picked the question this week and I think it's only fair that you sign us out. That's game.